0: Amen. Uh, if you have a Bible, will be in the book of uh, Galatians, Galatians chapter two. If you want to turn there, that would be a great place to turn. Hope everyone had an uh, outstanding holiday. Hopefully, you all um, didn't enjoy it too much. Now there is a, uh, a proverb that was going through my head as I was celebrating the holiday meal. There's a proverb from Proverbs twenty-five. I'd like to read to you, Proverbs twenty-five. If you have found honey. Eat only enough for you or else having much, you will vomit it. It's a very, very beautiful proverb. But in my head, as I'm enjoying Thanksgiving or Christmas, on the one hand, I have this wise statement in my head. Don't eat too much, honey. If you do, it'll make you sick. You don't want to do that. That's one option for how you are to approach the holiday table. There is another approach by another wise man not so much in the Bible, though, but it's a gentleman named Louis C.K. who has this attitude about eating. I don't stop eating when I'm full. The meal isn't over when I'm full. It's over when I hate myself. On Christmas, no exaggeration, I did not eat Christmas dinner. You want to know why? Because I ate fudge. From the moment I walked into Lindsay's grandparents' house, I started eating. The seal had been broken. And when they sat down at the meal, I was like, guys, I've, I've literally eaten my dinner as fudge. So, sorry, I'm not doing that. So amazingly, after Christmas, all your pants become skinny jeans. So, it's an amazing thing. And so what happens is, you have this experience in which, if you were like me, you gain the obligatory five pounds around the holidays. Okay? Average, according to some research shows that people gain five pounds, which is an amazing accomplishment we should all be proud of. It's growth, it's improvement. But then New Year's comes, that's what I'm talking about, Stephen. Well, New Year's shows up. And everyone's like, "Uh uh-oh, I've got to get myself in gear. And so we start talking about New Year's resolutions. And the very first one that everyone talks about is what? I need to lose weight. Yes. It's I need to lose weight. I need to improve something. I need to change something. And so I want to talk about that today. What we're going to do next week is we're going to have our five-year anniversary service, and we're going to talk about that. The following week, we will get back to talking about monsters. But this week, I want to talk about resolutions. Not because God really cares about you getting your beach body or because God cares about you getting um, your house cleaner every week. That's not the issue. But what's behind that? The motivation that gets us doing the resolutions that we do. The motivation that makes us think that we need to do this is very much so a God issue. Let's start uh, reading Galatians 2. Uh, In Galatians 2, Paul writes this. It's all right. For Side note, last Sunday I was preaching at a friend's church uh, down in Dallas, and um, th- their sound guy wasn't as quick to punch buttons as our well-trained sound people are here. And I have the agreement with our sound guys, I can make jokes with them, like if they mess up, like, hey, I can just make jokes to make it funny for everyone. It's not as good to do that when you don't know the person running slides. Just That's just a little free one that I learned last week. Anyway, um, Galatians 2. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. and It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What I live, it's not me anymore, but it's Christ living through me. That's who you are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, help us to remember who we are in you. And no matter what resolution we have, how we want to step up our game or improve ourselves or make progress let us remember that that does not shape who we are in you. And we don't need to change anything to be more loved by our Heavenly Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So since um, I I do the podcast thing that I do, I get books in the mail from publishers who want me to to read their book and and to talk about it. And so it's no uh, random occurrence for me to have books that I've never heard of, authors I've never read before, just show up on my front door. And so I don't want to be rude because I'm not going to read them all. And I don't want to just throw them away because that would be like, you know, bad for the environment. So what I do is I put them in my office and I just like have a this like growing stack of books that I'm never going to read. And so one day I'm sitting in my office a few months ago and Lindsay walks in, but before she gets in the door, she says, Luke, do you want me to print, you know, the weekly off or something off for Venture? Uh, Because I'm sure you're busy right now. And what am I? I'm sitting on my phone, on my chair in my office. and I'm going, I really don't want to print them. And so I reach up and I grab one of those books I was not planning on reading. I'm like, yes, honey, I am very busy doing the Lord's work. It'd be great if you did my job for me. And so she's printing this off. And so I have to read this book, which I wasn't planning on reading. And the reason I wasn't planning on reading the book is because it fits in a group of Christian books that I like to call the, you're a terrible Christian if you're not doing what I'm telling you to do category. Now, that's not actually anywhere on the book. It's just the sense that I get where you have these books that tell you you're not really a good Christian. If you're doing what you're doing right now, you need to do more. And often what more looks like happens to be the very thing that the author, surprise, surprise, does very often. Whether you're not a good Christian, if you're not You know, creating your own clothes at home and not contributing to a corrupt, you know, uh, clothing industry. Or if you ever use your phone, you're a bad person. Now, don't get me wrong. I think discipleship is always causing each of us to look inward and to take deeper steps of commitment. And don't get me wrong. I think in a, a place like Texas where everyone is a Christian, it's very easy for everyone to water down their commitment to Christ I agree with those things, but I think often when people play on guilt, they're playing on something that we all have. We all have guilt. The reason that so many movies have as their goal redemption for the main character is because we all know there's something wrong that we need to fix, and you don't have to read a whole lot. You don't have to read much. Even in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' main teaching, to realize that we're all guilty. Jesus said, You've heard it said, do not commit, do not uh, get a divorce. But I say unto you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in their heart. And any guy who reads that doesn't have to think too hard about how many times they took that second glance at someone they shouldn't have. And go, yeah, there's there's something wrong with what I've done. Uh, Jesus also says, you've heard it said, <clears throat> you've heard it said an eye for an eye. But I say, do not resist evildoers. If someone strikes you on one side of the cheek, turn the other cheek. And you've heard it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I say unto you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And you don't have to think too long to think about your your own inner dialogue in your head. And we've skipped past praying for those who persecute us and wishing well for those who have harmed us. And we create... Instead, in our mind, these recreations of our interactions with people where we're, like, punching up our dialogue. And so instead of those times when they said something to you and it hurt your feelings and you wanted to respond, and instead of saying something like, um, yeah, well, you, so what? You create this dialogue where you say something really punchy. And so all the people around you go, oh, snap, after you say it, and it sounds really great, and you're the hero. Or maybe... I just think that way since I was born in Philadelphia and we talk like that in the playground. Jesus said, don't store up treasures on earth. Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Jesus said a lot of things in the sermon that you don't have to read too much of that and go, I I don't live up to this. And if anyone has a little bit of honesty, you look at it and go, we all have fallen short of what we want to be. And when you play on that, you can play on something that we all have inside of us. And there's a problem when... That becomes our motivation for change. You see, there's a difference in thinking that what I have done is wrong and thinking that there's something wrong with me. There's a drastic difference when you think, yes, I have done something wrong, which is guilt, and when you start to think that there is something wrong with me because that's shame. And often that is the motivator for resolutions. Two years ago, <clears throat> I decided I was going to start writing. So I need to start writing. And so I begin this journey of, I'm going to start writing things. And I write this pro- one thing, and then the next year I, I need to write something out. And so I write that, which is good. It's a good to have resolutions. It's helpful for me. But the problem with that resolution is I remember the exact moment when I decided I needed to do this. I was at my in-law's house. It was Christmas, sitting on the love seat in their living room. And the thought crossed my head that, Luke, you are not accomplishing enough. You aren't doing enough. You're, you're not doing what you should. There's something wrong with you. You're a failure because you're not accomplishing so much. And the difference is I could be saying that, Luke, you haven't made good choices and you've wasted time on things that you could have been more useful with. Instead, I thought, Luke, you are a failure. Do you see the difference? And when you use that kind of thinking that there's something wrong with you, it becomes a good flame to get you going, It is a good motivator. Honestly, it is. But eventually that flame will consume you. Because that's not a place where you can live out of. Peter Scarzo, in his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, talks about the temptations Jesus faced in the wilderness. The three temptations of turning uh, stone into bread, of bowing down to the devil, so the devil will give him control of all the world, and then throwing himself from the top of the temple so that God would send angels to rescue him. And Scarzo talks about those three temptations as a temptation for performance, like you perform this thing of stone to bread, of possession, having the whole world, and then the temptation of popularity, of everyone knows who Jesus would be because God would send an angel to rescue him. And he says underneath most of our motivation are those three temptations of, I need to perform better, I need to possess more, and I need to be more popular. How many times is that the dialogue that gets us going? Like, I need to do better this year, and I'm going to resolve to do X, Y, or Z because I can possess more. I can be more popular. I can perform better. And Skizero, when he talks about those temptations, he says, underneath Jesus, underneath the surface for Jesus, the thing that enables him to withstand those tests and to pass the test is because he knows what God said about him at his baptism. Just before Jesus goes in the wilderness, he is baptized. God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And that is what gets him through the temptation. Uh, Skizera writes this. Let's read this quote from him. He says this about Jesus. God told him, you are lovable. You are good. It is so good that you exist. Jesus has yet to perform miracles or to die on the cross for the sins of humanity. Nonetheless, he receives an experiential affirmation that he is deeply loved by his heavenly father for who he is. This love is the foundation of his self-understanding and the root source of how he feels about himself. Living and swimming in the river of God's deep love for us in Christ is at the very heart of true spirituality. Soaking in this love enables us to surrender to God's will especially when it seems so contrary to what we can see, feel, or figure out ourselves. Instead of giving into the temptation that you need to perform better, that you need to possess more, and that you need more popularity, you have the understanding that no matter what you do, you are loved, and you are enough. And so instead of feeling... Like you always have to do more and resolve to get better at those things to earn something you know deep down inside what God says about you. And that is the most troubling thing about resolutions is often it tells us something else about our identity other than what God says about who you are. And this is what's problematic because sometimes you can succeed at your resolution and it can actually cause the temptation to be worse. Sometimes success is the very biggest problem because it encourages you to think in this way other than what God thinks about you. Uh, There was a a gentleman named Thomas Merton who wrote a a best-selling book who was later approached by a guy writing a book on success. And he wanted to hear what Thomas Merton had to say about the, the conquest and the attempt to gain success. And so Thomas Merton responds this way to the guy who's trying to figure out how to become successful. And Merton writes this. I replied indignantly that I was not to consider myself a success in any terms that had a meaning to me. I swore I'd spent my life strenuously avoiding success. If it happened that I had once written a bestseller, this was a pure accident due to inattention and naivete. I would take very good care never to do the same thing again. If, it, if I had a message to my contemporaries, I said, it was surely this. Be anything you like. Be madmen, drunks, kids, don't take that literally. Of every shape and form, but at all costs, avoid one thing. Success. I heard no more reply from him and I am not aware that my reply was published. Merton's point is this. If you're successful, it can perpetuate this idea that you're better, that you are more loved, that your life is more of enough, whatever enough is to you when you do more. And that's why the, the, the ability to slide into pride is so easy where you go from being depressed about something. And then a few weeks after mastering this habit, all of a sudden now you're the expert and you look down on people who don't do it. Right? Right. How many times have you seen the normal person who watches TV? They have their shows on TV. They like to watch them. They show up to watch their shows. Or maybe they're a binge watcher on Netflix. Every night they watch Netflix and they watch about four episodes more than they really should. And they love it. This is their life. And then they get this wild hair and they decide, I'm going to give up TV. I'm never going to watch TV again. And what happens? inevitably, it gets worked into every conversation. How's the weather today? Uh, I don't know because I don't watch TV. What are you doing this evening? Whatever the Lord says, because I don't watch TV like you heathens, right? And you go from being this person who has to watch so much of it, and now all of a sudden you are looking down on people who do the exact same thing you did just weeks before. That's, that's not opposite ends of the spectrum. Ultimately, that is symptoms of the same disease, it is ultimately the same issue just wrapped in different symptoms. Both of those are reflections of low self-esteem, of an inability to have your own identity in something greater than your behavior. And so it might look like on the one hand that you were bragging, on the other hand you were depressed, but really it's the same thing, that your behavior dictates who you are and how you understand yourself. The problem with that is you allow your identity to be rooted in something other than what God says about you. But ultimately what God says about you is the only thing that's true. And so before you venture onto doing any resolution this year, before you venture to get your life together and step your game up in any category, hear this. Before your finances were in order, you were loved. And while you continued to drink too much, You were loved. And while you continue to eat more than you should, you are enough. (coughs) Because while you were yet undisciplined and unorganized and untogether, Christ died for you. If you hear nothing else, hear this. Your resolutions does not affect God's resolute commitment to call you his son and his daughter. And don't believe anything else. Now, this would be easy to misunderstand and think, well, then we should never do anything to improve ourselves. If God loves us the way we are, then we don't need to ever worry about improving ourselves and getting better and improving on any area of our life. But the issue is not about your desire to improve yourself. It's where that's coming from. Because ultimately, resolutions are about your ability to have willpower to resolutely commit to doing something. The journey of Christianity is learning to live out of your identity. And that drastically shapes how you experience life. Learning to live out of that shapes who you are in ways that resolutions can't touch. So I want you to imagine a scenario. I want you to imagine you're a senior in college. And you're just weeks away from graduation. And when you graduate, you've got this dream job lined up. As soon as you get your diploma, they're going to say, you're hired, you've got the paper signed, you've got the job. You're engaged, you're going to get married just two weeks after graduation, you're going to start your new life with your new job and your new diploma. But just three weeks before graduation, you get a call from your academic advisor, and they say, sorry about this, but you missed a freshman level English class, and you can't graduate without it. So you can come back in the fall because that's the only time during the fall, the spring that's offered. It's offered in the fall. And you say, what are you talking about? I'm about to graduate. My grandparents have bought plane tickets. They figured out how to use Priceline. I explained it to them on the phone. You can't undo what I went through to teach them how to use Priceline. And she says, okay, there's one option. You can take a Maymester class the week after graduation. It'll count as a freshman Bible class. And you say, of course, I'm going to take that but what about graduation? And they say, it's fine. You can already walk as long as you pass this class. We'll actually send your diploma a few weeks later. So you take this class and all you need to do is just, just get a C to pass. That's all you need. And so you're coasting through. You get to the last week of the last day of the short course and your final showing up and you have an 80 in the class. You're doing good. All you need to pass since your final is like 30% of your grade. So you need roughly like a 50% on your final to keep that C average and pass. And so you've got plenty of things to think about. You've got a honeymoon coming up. You've got a new job coming up. You're thinking about all these things. So you don't do what the assignment is, which is to read the book, Moby Dick. Instead, you go online. And since you can't find a movie that you can download on Netflix, you find Cliff Notes and you scan through that. You know that the test is going to be multiple choice. You can get through and get a 50 from Cliff Notes. That's all you do but you show up to class and the teacher hands you one piece of paper. You look at the piece of paper and you go, oh, just one side, one piece of paper. This test can't be bad. I'm going to be out of here in 30 minutes. You're feeling really good. And then you start reading the questions. There's only one question. Again, this is even better. You read the question. and It says this, how did you read the book Moby Dick? Yes or no? And you go, well, I read Cliff Notes, Moby Dick, that counts. And you look underneath and find print. It says, no, Cliff Notes does not count. Did you read Moby Dick? Yes or no? That's the only question in your final. You're either going to pass or you're going to get a zero. If you get a zero, you do not graduate. You do not get the job. You do not get married. Why? I don't know. Just go with it. What do you do? My ethics professor in college wrote a book and he used this example in it. And he writes this about what he thinks all of his former students would do. And he writes this. This is what Randy Harris says. If the consequences are high enough, most people's integrity is for sale. And if you don't lie in that situation, I contend there's only one reason you don't. Because you're not that kind of person. This is another form of ethics, which we call virtue ethics, which is not really about what kind of actions we do but about what kind of people we are. Randy Hare says, most people, their integrity is for sale. Most people are going to say, yes, I read the book. No big deal. It's a lie that I'm never going to get caught for. No one's going to get hurt. No big deal. The only reason you don't say yes on that question is because it's not the kind of person you are. There is a difference in living out of actions that you choose to take and living out of an identity that you have. That's his argument. The only reason... You pass the ethical test, not the actual test, is because of who you are. And the real issue for Christians is not about having this resolute commitment to keeping these choices that we want to make, but learning to live out of what God says we are. In Galatians 2, if we could go back and read that again, Paul makes this statement about how our identity is found in Christ. In Galatians 2, Paul writes this. Excuse me. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live in God. I have been crucified with Christ and is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The story of Christianity is that who you are has gone into the water and has been drowned. Your old self has gone into the water and you have passed away. You have come up out of the water as a new person. And who that person is, it's Christ living in you. So this process of Christianity is learning to live out of that identity. That you have an understanding of, these are the choices I make. This is how I act in this circumstance. When someone does this to me, this is how I respond. This is who you are. But the process of becoming a Christian is learning to see this is who Christ is. This is how Christ responds in those situations. This is how he responds when people treat him that way and learning to let that become who you are. And so it's not about you striving to get your life in order, but it's learning to let Christ live through you. So the resolution really we are called to make is to learn to picture who Christ is and to picture how Christ responds in every situation and to let your knowledge and your belief of yourself fade away and to say, that is who I am. And it doesn't change your understanding of how God views you, if you are lovable, if you are enough, if your life matters, because that has already been established once and for all. You matter. Even if you can't keep your resolution into the month of February, even if it is January 4th and you've already given up on your resolution. God has not given up on you. You were loved just the same. Our process of joining in in this process of salvation is learning to let Christ and His identity be who we see ourselves to be. And that is a lifelong journey. We take this meal called Communion or Eucharist or the Lord's Supper every week, because it reminds us of who we are. We're people of the cross. We are people of the death, burial, and resurrection. And that is our story. Let's pray. <coughs> God, my prayer this morning is that we would learn not to live out of shame and the feeling like we are not enough and that we would not live out of a place that says we must possess more, we need to perform better, or we need to become more popular for us to be lovable. But let us live out of the commitment that what you say about us is true. And you say we are your sons and your daughters and we are loved. And let that be enough for us. And as we learn to grow and to improve and to become more like Christ let that be not about what we can accomplish, but what Christ is doing through us. And as we learn to see food or drink as a way that fits more into what God you have called us to see those things as, let that be about what Christ is doing through us. And as we learn to manage finances better, let that really be about Christ learning to, let that us be about shaping our view. And letting Christ work through us and put that area under discipleship from Him. And as we try to get rid of that bad habit, that process of that, that way that we deal with pain or boredom or hurt, let that not be about our ability to pull ourselves up by our proverbial bootstraps, but about your work in us. And let us know that we are enough. Because we trust that you are enough. As we take this meal and we remember the body that was broken and the blood that was shed, let this shape who we are. In your name we pray.